MEIC presents Down to Earth, the audio mag. I'm Katie Spence, and this is the September 2023 issue. From the Executive Director, written by Carrie Kimball. Wow, 50 years. MEIC's staff has been looking back at the history of the organization, sifting through boxes of old photos and historic newsletters, and speaking with some of the founders of our organization about how MEIC got its start. What a privilege it's been to reflect on our origin story and how we got where we are. When we feel overwhelmed by the immensity of the challenges we face, we can look at how far we've come these past 50 years. This issue is full of victories and ongoing battles for the clean and healthful soul of Montana. We put many of these victories into a timeline, but not every discovery made the cut. For example, the timeline, which is linked in the show notes, doesn't capture numerous rowdy patron outings, staff floats on the Missouri, or adventurous road trips to meet with our members. Nor does it reflect the tale of Nancy McLean and other volunteers running the mimeograph machine till their arm nearly fell off, making copies of early issues of Down to Earth. Or the time when Anne Hedge's son accidentally burst through a glass window at an MEIC holiday party. On the more official end, MEIC has put up dozens of hurdles to stop damaging extraction projects and help safeguard some of Montana's most beloved rivers and landscapes. We cannot do everything, but in Montana, where we have some of the planet's most awe-inspiring lands and waters, and also a quarter of the nation's recoverable coal reserves, we can do something. And together, oh boy, can we make a difference. Our state faces enormous challenges especially with the increasingly severe life and landscape-altering impacts of climate change. Montana had the honor to be the first state to go to trial in a case where the youth plaintiff sued the state and won for failing to take meaningful climate action. Unfortunately, many people arrive at the conclusion that climate change and other environmental harms are too big and too complex to try and solve. Of course, this is partially why MEIC was formed 50 years ago by Phil Tawney and Robin Tawney Nichols, and their friends and colleagues, to bring together a group of people who care deeply to work collectively. In reviewing the ways that MEIC has had an impact, I'm left with a huge sense of gratitude and awe. Thank you, thank you, to our thoughtful, generous board members who donate their time and talent to support MEIC, to our brilliant staff, who are pouring their intelligence and heart into MEIC's work, our partners who bring a diversity of perspectives, strategies, and expertise to the table, and our outstanding community of members and volunteers whose passion inspires us on a daily basis. Together, we are helping Montana become a better, brighter place. Read, or listen, to some encouraging thoughts and messages from our friends past and present in this issue. Our team today is so excited to invite the members of MEIC's community to help us write the next chapter of MEIC's history. So cheers, y'all. Let's celebrate. MEIC has spent 50 years upholding Montanans' right to a clean and healthful environment and pushing back against polluting industries. If you believe that people come before profits, that we all have intrinsic rights to clean air and water, and that Montana's wild places and open spaces deserve protection, you belong with us. MEIC's community of changemakers and rabble-rousers is stronger because you're part of it. And dang, are we grateful. Judge temporarily suspends enforcement of bad coal laws, written by Durf Johnson. In a very important step toward protecting our climate, water quality, and the ability for the public to participate in governmental decision-making, MEIC was able to secure a stipulation against enforcement by the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, regarding two very bad coal mining laws that were set to become law immediately after their passage during the 2023 legislative session. This is a crucial victory. If these laws were to go into effect, they would seriously undermine water quality and quantity protections for sensitive prairie streams, and prohibit the public from seeking judicial redress when the government or coal mining corporations break the law. While the fight is not over to prevent these laws from going into effect, this stipulation is only temporary, we have a slight reprieve and can now focus our energies on the correct approval process and hopefully beat back these weakened standards. 
While the 2023 Montana legislature was generally a bruiser for the environment, HB 576 and SB 392 were some of the more misguided bills signed into law by Governor Greg Gianforte. These bills weaken Montana's coal mining laws, known as the Montana Surface and Underground Mine Reclamation Act. These laws spell out the permitting, enforcement, and reclamation process for coal mines in Montana. This act is modeled after and must conform with its federal counterpart, the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act, also known as SMACRA. SMACRA was passed by Congress in the late 1970s to address the serious environmental and social harm being caused by coal strip mining. It not only established a set of federal environmental standards, but also established a permitting process that included public participation requirements. These standards are meant to assure that water and air quality are protected and that the public is adequately informed and consulted in advance of mine permitting decisions. As is typical with federal laws, SMACRA also allowed for states to assume responsibility for its implementation and enforcement, known as primacy. Montana chose to implement the federal program with the passage of the Montana Surface and Underground Mine Reclamation Act. However, in order for Montana to receive and maintain primacy, it must, quote, implement, administer, enforce, and maintain, end quote, its state program in accordance with SMACRA, as well as regulations issued by the U.S. Office of Surface Mining, or OSM. The Montana legislature, never one to shy away from anti-federal sentiments, amended the Montana Surface and Underground Mine Reclamation Act with two bills that contained provisions for making them effective immediately. The first, HB 576, sponsored by Representative Rhonda Knudsen, a Republican from Colbertson, would weaken water quality protections for impacts that coal mines cause outside of the mine site. Specifically, HB 576 amended the definition of material damage, a critical component of assessing a mine's water quality impacts, to be more ambiguous and difficult to determine whether the mine would cause unnecessary pollution. The second, SB 392, sponsored by Senator Steve Fitzpatrick, a Republican out of Great Falls, would require that individuals and organizations that challenge permitting decisions of coal mines under the Montana Surface and Underground Mine Reclamation Act potentially assume the legal fees of coal companies and the government. This would basically put a giant padlock on the courthouse doors for individuals and organizations who are harmed by coal mining activity, as the risk associated with having to pay expensive industry lawyers would likely be too great to actually file a case. These laws contained immediate effective dates, meaning that DEQ would be required to enforce them immediately. Fortunately, both SMACRA and OSM's implementing regulations require a much more stringent process before a state can amend its program. Most importantly, any substantive change to a state's program must undergo an approval process with OSM and other relevant federal agencies in advance of becoming effective and enforceable at the state level. Because the laws were obviously in conflict with SMACRA and OSM regulations in regard to the approval process, MEIC and our partners filed a federal lawsuit in June and a request for a temporary restraining order against DEQ to prohibit it from implementing or enforcing the new laws. Thankfully, in late June, the judge approved a stipulation between MEIC and DEQ to not, quote, take any action to apply, effectuate, or enforce the provisions of HB 576 or SB 392, end quote, for seven months. This timeline mirrors the timeline required under federal regulations for approval of amendments to state programs. Now that the laws are temporarily suspended, they can be properly reviewed by federal authorities, and the public will have an opportunity to comment on the problematic aspects of these changes. An official comment period will begin once OSM publishes a notice in the Federal Register. Stay tuned and watch for an opportunity to voice your concerns, likely in future issues of Down to Earth and or in MEIC's e-newsletter, Three Things You Can Do. Sign up for our emailed action alerts through the link in the show notes. Judge orders release of Gianforte Communications with Bad Actor Mining Corporation, written by Durf Johnson. Over the past few years, Governor Greg Gianforte has wrongfully withheld public documents from an official document request by attempting to utilize an incredibly novel legal theory that a judge characterized as, quote, completely unmoored from the text, history, and purpose 
underlying both Article 2, Section 9 and the implementing public records statutes. End quote. In his order, the judge cited Article 2, Section 9 of the Constitution because it contains the fundamental right for Montanans to access public writings of our government. It's one of the strongest constitutional right-to-know provisions in the country, with the aim of assuring that the government is transparent and accountable to the people it serves. MEIC and Earthworks requested records around the communications that Governor Greg Gianforte's office had with Hecla Mining and its president, Phillips S. Baker, Jr. For context, under the Bullock administration, Hecla and Baker were designated as bad actors for Baker's former company's failure to reclaim and remediate major environmental damage at the Zortman-Landusky Mining Complex, which has cost the state and federal government more than $80 million as of 2017, and has severely impacted cultural and environmental resources of the Fort Belknap Indian community. As required by the Bad Actor Law, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, suspended the permitting activity for Hecla's proposed mines in far northwest Montana under Governor Bullock's administration the Montanor and Rock Creek mines. If approved, these mines would tunnel under the Cabinet Mountains in a federally designated wilderness area, severely impact water resources, risk further impacts to an isolated population of grizzly bears, and dewater critical streams for bull trout. Under the Bullock administration's decision, Hecla could not proceed with attempting to permit the Cabinet Mountains mines unless and until the company either reclaimed the damage wrought at Zortman Landusky or compensated the state for the reclamation costs. Governor Gianforte's administration did a complete U-turn. It dropped the enforcement action against Baker and Hecla, and reactivated the permits at Montanor and Rock Creek. As you can imagine, Governor Gianforte waving the white flag and dropping a years-long enforcement action to protect public resources and tax dollars against an international mining company raised alarm bells at MEIC. Governor Gianforte's official explanation did not make sense, so we decided to dig a little deeper. We filed an official information request with his office to better understand both the deliberations that went into the decision to drop the bad actor matter, as well as the administration's relationship with mining interests. We'd also like to know, did the Gianforte administration drop the case after being lobbied by Hecla slash Baker? After four months of virtual radio silence and no public documents, we brought suit in Montana District Court in Helena with the help of attorneys Kim Wilson and Robert Ferris Olson. Long story short, the governor refused to release any of the documents by arguing a novel legal defense, that the governor did not have to respond due to litigation in a separate case against DEQ. This case, brought forth by the Fort Belknap Indian Community, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, MEIC, and other partners. This litigation is meant to enforce the bad actor law. And unsurprisingly, the judge didn't bite. Rejecting the governor's argument, the judge has ordered that the Gianforte administration release the records to MEIC and Earthworks. However, as of this writing, the governor's office has not released any documents. Notably, such a decision is subject to an appeal, and it is likely that the governor's office, rather than release the records, will appeal the decision to the Montana Supreme Court, and in the interim, argue that they should not be required to release any of the records until the appeals process has concluded. Rest assured, MEIC will be dogged in pursuing the documents from the governor's stalling tactics and any appeals process, as well as defending the fundamental right of all Montanans to access public information and to hold our government accountable. Montana youth get their days in court and win. Written by Ann Hedges. When 16 young Montanans sued the state over its failure to consider the climate crisis, most folks had no idea that the trial would be such a powerful experience. Those who participated in cheering on the kids every day as they walked into the courtroom felt a rare sense of community and hope. Many of us sat mesmerized as we listened to expert after expert tell of the harm that is occurring across the state by a rapidly changing climate or detail Montana's oversized influence on the global climate, or provide a succinct analysis of the solutions that are available today to stabilize the climate system and save Montanans billions of dollars in the process. It felt like we were privy to a college-level course on climate science, Montana political history, energy systems, and the myriad solutions that are available right now. It was one of the greatest honors of my life, 
to tell the court about MEIC's history of trying to convince the state legislature, governors, courts, and administrative agencies that they had a duty to address our fossil fuel-fired climate catastrophe and implement solutions. But nothing was more powerful than the testimony of the 16 youth plaintiffs. They were as impressive as they were brave in telling the stories about the impact the climate crisis is already having on their lives, their families, and their cultures. Relaying their fears for their future brought tears to many an eye in the room. Their heartfelt testimony was a devastating but powerful indictment of the disaster that politicians have perpetuated by choosing powerful, moneyed, fossil fuel interests over the well-being of present and future generations of Montanans and the environment that supports us. Quote, I know that climate change is a global issue, but Montana needs to take responsibility for our part in that. We can't just blow it off and do nothing about it, plaintiff Ava L. said. Just one step in the right direction would be most important, end quote. Quote, it's really scary seeing what you care for disappear right in front of your eyes, plaintiff Serial Sandoval said. We wouldn't be here without the land. It feeds us. It shelters us. It takes great care of us, and we need to take great care of it too. End quote. Sandoval is a member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and said that Native communities, quote, have lived through genocide, assimilation, relocation, termination, and so many other traumas. We can definitely adapt and survive climate change, but that doesn't make it right. End quote. The seven-day trial kicked off with the testimony of the youngest delegate to the 1972 Montana Constitutional Convention. Manan Ellingson relayed the history of the convention and the determination by the delegates to ensure that Montana's constitution was the most environmentally protective constitution in America. The right to a clean and healthful environment was not just a meaningless afterthought. It was a provision that was created by delegates such as Bob Campbell, who argued strenuously over how to craft language that would clearly relay that environmental harm was supposed to be prevented, not just mitigated after harm had occurred. The state's complete lack of a defense was discouraging, to say the least. It wasted untold sums to hire experts to deny climate science, misrepresent the economic impacts of changing course and investing in a clean energy system, and undermine the youth's claims. But at trial... The state only called one of those high-paid witnesses, who admitted he was paid $500 an hour. Our children's trust attorney, Phil Gregory, demonstrated that the so-called expert had poor math skills, no scientific basis to his analysis, and no sources for some of his most damning claims. His testimony was shredded, and the judge ruled that his testimony was, quote, not well-supported, contained errors, and was not given weight by the court, end quote. All the state had were a couple of nice employees who talked about their kids. The director of the Department of Environmental Quality even admitted he had never heard of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change until he heard testimony the previous week. The other agency head said she wasn't qualified to say if humans were influencing the climate. Both state employees admitted they were just following the legislature's orders by ignoring climate change in their decisions to permit coal, oil, and gas resources. In the end, the state spent a bundle of taxpayer money and yet failed to spend more than a few hours defending its indefensible position. In all, it was an uplifting, yet frightening, experience. It was incredibly moving to watch these young people bear their souls, discuss their impressive accomplishments, and describe their vision for the future. Many thanks to the brilliant legal team who brought this case, especially Roger Sullivan and the Western Environmental Law Center's Barbara Chilcott and Melissa Hornbein. Also thanks to Shiloh Hernandez, who not only represented MEIC on many of the court cases that demonstrated how difficult it is to get justice for the climate under Montana's laws, but who also helped to bring the case when he was at Welk. And thanks to the amazing team at our Children's Trust for their vision and talent in making this case happen. And, as an important update to this story, the judge ruled in favor of the Montana youth. Just in the nick of time for our down-to-earth deadline, Judge Kathy Seeley ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in the landmark youth climate case held v. State of Montana on August 14th. The judge ruled that the state has violated their right to a clean and healthful environment by ignoring the climate crisis. The court determined that two 2023 legislative changes to the Montana Environmental Policy Act are unconstitutional because they prevent the state from considering or addressing the climate crisis 
and its impacts on Montanans and our environment. While this will most likely be appealed, this is a huge win for Montana and for the nation. It's past time for our state to fully consider and address the climate impacts from our outdated energy system. We'll have more details in a future issue. You can read the decision on our website through a link in the show notes. DEQ pursues enforcement action regarding Zortman Landusky, MEIC, Files for Intervention. Written by Durf Johnson. It's time to prohibit any further mining activities in the Little Rocky Mountains. Full stop. The recent unpermitted mining activity by Blue Ark and others is a serious affront in a long series of injuries to the Fort Belknap Indian community and the rule of law. This is why the Fort Belknap Indian community, MEIC, and our conservation partners recently filed a motion to intervene in an enforcement action brought by the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, regarding the illegal mining activity within the Zortman-Landusky Reclamation Area, where tens of millions in public funds have already been spent to address ongoing pollution from the defunct Zortman and Landusky mines in the Little Rocky Mountains. This mining activity threatens to exacerbate environmental harm in an area of profound cultural significance to the Fort Belknap Indian community. The Grovan and Assiniboine tribes have faced an extreme environmental justice burden from the mines for decades, and it's past time to redress these wrongs and set a new course. DEQ brought an enforcement action in April 2023 against Luke Ployhar, Owen Voigt, and their respective companies after Ployhar and Voigt attempted to circumvent the Montana permitting process by illegally mining at the former Zortman mine site. DEQ has requested $512,767 in fines and permanent injunctive relief and to prohibit Ployhar, Voigt, and their companies from future mining until the disturbances are reclaimed and the penalties are paid. In 2022, DEQ required Ployhar to complete an environmental impact statement on the cultural impacts of mining the Zortman site, but later discovered that Ployhar and Voigt had already charged forward without the requisite authorization. Tribes and conservation groups had previously challenged DEQ's approval of a different mining exploration license of Ployhar's at the site, which is currently stayed in Phillips County District Court. A hearing was held in Montana District Court on August 4th to consider the intervention, as well as a request for a preliminary injunction by DEQ to prevent any further illegal mining activity. Amanda Galvin with Earth Justice is representing the Fort Belknap Indian Community, MEIC, Montana Trout Unlimited, and Earthworks in the intervention. Northwestern continues gas plant construction despite missing approvals. Written by Ann Hedges. Northwestern Energy subscribes to the attitude that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission when it comes to building its 175-megawatt methane gas plant on the banks of the Yellowstone River near Laurel. It continues to build the plant despite lacking zoning approval from the city of Laurel to change the land use from agricultural to heavy industrial. It lacks approval from the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, for an air permit that a court rejected due to the state's failure to disclose and analyze the environmental harm. And it has twice withdrawn its request to the Montana Public Service Commission, PSC, to pass the $286 million cost onto customers. In short, it's building the plant and hoping to get away with it, despite lacking the legal permission to do so. Stall long enough, and it becomes more and more unlikely that a court order would unbuild a completed plant. Two years ago, Northwestern requested approval from the Laurel City Commission to change the zoning of the plant site to allow for heavy industrial use. When the community complained that the plant would be too loud, too bright, and polluting for an agricultural area along the Yellowstone River, Northwestern withdrew its proposed zoning change request and proceeded with construction. Soon after, New city staff decided to ignore the city's obligation to rezone the property. The county insisted it was the city's responsibility to rezone. The Thiel Road Coalition, MEIC, and Northern Plains Resource Council, represented by Earth Justice, challenged the city's failure to rezone the property. A state district court hearing was held in Billings on August 17, 2023, a week following this writing, 
followed by a rally in support of the community near the plant. There is no time frame for the court to issue a ruling, but we hope it will be done quickly. Northwestern also lacks a valid air pollution permit from the DEQ after Billings District Court judge ruled in April 2023 that the permit was invalid because DEQ had failed to disclose the plant's impacts on the climate and neighboring community under the Montana Environmental Policy Act, MEPA. The court vacated the permit, but reversed course after the legislature hastily changed the law to prohibit DEQ from considering the methane plant's contribution to the climate crisis, though a court recently found the new law unconstitutional in the held case. The plant is projected to emit three quarters of a million tons of greenhouse gases each year, as well as methane emissions from extraction and leaky pipeline infrastructure. The court required DEQ to conduct a more thorough analysis of the plant's environmental impacts. However, DEQ only analyzed the plant's lighting impacts on the surrounding area and Yellowstone River corridor. The comment deadline closed in early July, and DEQ is slow walking a final decision while Northwestern continues to build the plant, leaving the neighboring landowners and those concerned about the plant's impact on the climate crisis with no remedy. Once DEQ issues a permit, MEIC fully intends to challenge DEQ's analysis, as well as the constitutionality of the legislature's attempt to exempt climate change from consideration under MEPA, one of the primary state laws that implements the constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. Finally, as reported in the last issue of Down to Earth, Northwestern Energy has twice requested the PSC to allow it to charge customers for the construction, operation, and maintenance of the power plant. The PSC has not ruled on Northwestern's most recent request to withdraw its proposal to charge customers through the rate case proceedings. If the PSC approves Northwestern's proposed settlement with one-third of the parties involved in the rate case, then Northwestern will be allowed to file for permission to charge customers in a proceeding in September. Unfortunately, the scope of what Northwestern will be allowed to request for cost recovery in the upcoming proceeding is incredibly unclear and will result in Northwestern being allowed to hide the ball. The public simply will not know the full cost of the plant before the PSC is required to decide if customers must pay those costs. Northwestern has complete disregard for its customers and their bills. With the proposed 28% rate increase, followed by a request to build an expensive new power plant and an IRP that only considers expensive new power plants instead of less expensive energy efficiency, conservation, and renewable energy, Montanans simply cannot afford its mismanagement. Northwestern Energy's Plan to Use Customers as an ATM Written by Ann Hedges Montanans can't afford Montana's largest utility. Right now, Northwestern Energy is trying to raise residential customer rates by 28%. In the fall, it will try once more to persuade the Montana Public Service Commission PSC, to allow it to charge customers for a billion-dollar gas plant outside of Laurel. Regulators are supposed to protect customers from monopoly utilities by requiring them to rigorously plan for future energy systems to avoid these types of price hikes. These plans, called Integrated Resource Plans, or IRP, are intended to provide a transparent blueprint for how a utility will provide affordable and reliable electricity in the future. Unfortunately, Northwestern's most recent plan fails on all counts. The law requires at least two public hearings on a utility's IRP, but the PSC held five, one in each commissioner's district. Even though the hearings occurred in the middle of August, when most Montanans are out enjoying the last few days of summer, Montanans turned out. People in Great Falls complained that the hearings were poorly advertised. They only heard about it from environmental organizations. And despite Bozeman having the strongest turnout at the 2019 IRP hearings, this time around, Bozeman was replaced with Butte, where Northwestern Energy has its headquarters. Despite these setbacks, Montanans showed up to ask the PSC to require Northwestern to plan for a more affordable electricity system that focuses on addressing the climate crisis. Many at the hearings complained that Northwestern's IRP will result in ever-increasing rates for consumers. As Roxarella testified, Quote, Montanans are being used as an ATM, end quote. Others complained that the plan largely ignores energy efficiency and demand-side management opportunities, which are critical when electricity demand is high and power prices skyrocket. 
Still others raised concerns about Northwestern's failure to keep and acquire more renewable energy resources. In fact, it intends to let existing contracts with renewable energy projects expire, such as with the Judith Gap Wind Energy Center. Many people, including former state regulator John Herron, complained about Northwestern trying to be the only utility in the nation wanting to increase its reliance on coal by doubling its ownership share of the 40-year-old coal strip coal-fired power plant. Its IRP failed to consider impending federal regulations that will require limits on greenhouse gas emissions, coal ash ponds, and toxic air pollution, technology that has already been installed at every other coal-fired plant in the nation. Many complained about its expensive proposal for methane gas plant near Laurel, while others criticized its proposal to eventually replace coal strip with experimental and outlandishly expensive nuclear technology that hasn't even been developed yet. There are so many flaws in Northwestern's IRP, but folks mostly raised concerns about Northwestern's utter lack of concern for the climate crisis, especially in light of the landmark held v. State of Montana judicial decision. Person after person pleaded with the PSC to force Northwestern to acknowledge that the energy system must change or we will face more heat, drought, and horrifying wildfires. At the time of this writing, only three of the five hearings have been held, but Montanans are fired up and demanding an energy system that relies on cleaner, more affordable technologies instead of perpetuating the mistakes of the past. Montana Updates Electric Vehicle Plan Written by Kenzie Criswell Montana's Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, and Department of Transportation, MDT, have joined efforts to update Montana's electric vehicle infrastructure plan. To minimize their impact on the climate, most vehicle manufacturers are moving toward EVs. Accomplishing this goal nationwide requires a massive build-out of EV charging stations. Fortunately, the state of Montana is in the process of helping make that happen. DEQ's experience with alternative fuels and electric vehicles and MDT's decade-long experience with fund allocation are a perfect combination to help spend the $7.5 billion of federal funding to help deploy EV charging stations across the nation. Montana will receive approximately $43 million over five years to support this project. Passed through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law in November 2021, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program will create a national network of EV charging stations using major interstates as its backbone. This system will, quote, support a convenient, affordable, reliable, and equitable national EV charging network, end quote, for EV drivers across Montana, according to DEQ's Kyla Mackey. States must meet certain requirements to receive funds provided by the program. This includes charging stations only being allowed along certain designated corridors, which includes I-90, I-15, I-94, US-93, and US-2, each charging port achieving at least 97% annual average uptime, consistent operation and maintenance, and each charger must provide at least 150 kilowatts to a vehicle. The plan will also only fund Combined Charging System Connectors, or CCS. CCS connectors are standard chargers with added power so that a high voltage of energy can be provided in a shorter amount of time. Most cars can use these connectors or available adapters. This doesn't prevent businesses or local entities from funding other types of chargers. However, they will not receive funding for anything without a CCS connector. These funds will be available to Montana until the $43 million is spent. Any funds that are not used will be taken back and redistributed to other states for the same project. So rest assured, all of the project money will be used for EV charging stations across the nation. This project will, quote, make it easier to drive across states to communities we visit, end quote, said DEQ's Neil Ullman in a July 2023 video. The National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program assists charging stations and holistically connects rural communities, making electric vehicle driving easier and cleaner. Montana Land Development, 50 Years Later Written by Anne Schwend 
1972, Montana's newly adopted constitution was followed by the Montana Subdivision and Platting Act in 1973. That same year, a young environmental organization, EIC at the time, was worried about the impacts of subdivision sprawl. This concern inspired a dedicated team of staffers and volunteers to embark on the Montana Subdivision Inventory Project, quote, to unearth the extent, pace, costs, and ramifications of land development in Montana, end quote. This project established a foundation at MEIC of closely monitoring the intersection between land use and environmental impacts that persists even 50 years later. From the project, quote, Montana's history is deeply rooted in the land. The extraction of the land's wealth and the miseries that it brought to Montana should warn us that land cannot be abused without consequence and that growth cannot proceed unbridled. If we value our rural nature and our open spaces, then we must forget the tired old belief that all growth is good, and we must recognize that Montana's resources, agricultural lands, wildlife, and forests in particular, are finite. End quote. Without internet access, the team meticulously combed through county files to manually review certificates of survey to assess the amount of land that had been subdivided in 35 of Montana's fastest growing counties. The team found that 334,017.9 acres had been divided into 114,085 lots since early statehood. But because of inconsistencies, they estimated closer to half a million acres had already been subdivided. This incredible inventory was published in 1975, along with many stories outlining the perils of subdivision sprawl on agriculture, wildlife, and communities. You can read this publication on our website through the link in the show notes. The team also found that development was accelerating and predicted that the boom in the Bitterroot, quote, could chop up the valley's whole land base by 1979, end quote, into parcels of less than 40 acres. When the project began, subdivision review requirements were limited to only parcels under 10 acres. In 1974, after significant efforts from EIC, the acreage increased to any parcels splits less than 20 acres. This change generated a surge in activity by developers to quickly get their properties platted before the new rules were in place. This doesn't sound so different from the attitudes of developers today, but much has changed since the original subdivision inventory was published. It's no secret that Montana has grown significantly over the past 50 years, especially in the past few years. The Helena Independent Record reported in 2022 that Montana's overall population expanded by 1.5% from July 2021 to July 2022, making it the sixth fastest-growing state in the nation by percent change. According to the Montana Regional Economic Analysis Project, some counties in Montana have experienced more than plus 1.5% average annual percent change in growth every year since 1970. The demand for new development is skyrocketing. The Montana Department of Labor reported a 78% increase in permitting of new housing units from 2019 to 2021. Average home prices in Montana also increased by 50% between 2020 and 2022. MEIC is closely monitoring sprawl and untethered growth in our rural areas because high demand can lead to expedited processes and unintended environmental impacts. Sustainable development should not occur without a comprehensive review of the potential impacts to water resources, landscapes, wildlife habitat, and how these sprawling growth patterns contribute to climate change. At the very least, it's time for an update to MEIC's Seminole 1975 Subdivision Inventory to help us better understand growth pressures in Montana and policy mechanisms for addressing unnecessary sprawl. We are in the information gathering stage to compare where we have been where we are now, and where we need to go. Get in touch if you have resources, expertise, or ideas you'd like to share with Anne Schwend through the link in the show notes. Will the EPA finally tackle forever chemicals? Written by Grace Gibson Snyder. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, abbreviated as PFAS, and often called forever chemicals, 
are human-made chemicals that were first developed in the 1940s. There are literally thousands of types of synthetic PFOS chemicals, which makes it hard to gather comprehensive information about them. PFOS are widely used due to their oil and water-resistant properties and can be found in everything from makeup and waterproof clothing to non-stick cookware and firefighting foam. Unfortunately, PFOS are also extremely toxic, even in tiny amounts. They are found in air, soil, and water. They bioaccumulate over time and take decades to break down. About 99% of Americans have PFOS in our blood. Each person's PFOS levels are different. Higher levels can be found by living or working around PFOS contamination, whether in air, soil, water, or substances like firefighting foam. Higher levels are caused by exposure to some consumer products, like food packaging, waterproof clothing, and stain-resistant carpeting. Consuming contaminated food and water raises PFOS levels, and about 200 million people in the U.S. have PFOS in their drinking water. Finally, Levels tend to be higher in children and pregnant women because their food consumption is high in proportion to their body weight, and thus proportionately increases their exposure. PFOS in our bodies may lead to decreased fertility in women, developmental effects in children, increased cancer risk, reduced immune responses, hormone changes, and a higher risk of obesity. Beyond the extremely personal impacts PFOS can have on our health, their impact on agriculture should be of particular interest to Montanans. Because PFOS can often end up in water supplies, they accumulate in wastewater treatment plants. The process by which the water is treated does not remove the PFOS, and the wastewater solids still contain high levels of forever chemicals. When the solids are recycled as biosolids to be used as fertilizer, the PFOS contaminate our soil and water, and ultimately our food supply. Other sites of concern in Montana are military facilities. Military facilities are prone to PFOS contamination largely due to their use of firefighting foam. The Montana Department of Environmental Quality has designated five sites as PFOS sites of concern. Maelstrom Air Force Base, Helena Army Aviation Support Facility, Fort Harrison, Montana Air National Guard Base in Great Falls, and the former Glasgow Air Force Base. One would think that, given their huge presence in our lives and health harms, PFOS would be tightly regulated. Unfortunately, regulation has been limited. Until the late 1990s, information about their toxicity was hidden from the EPA and the public. Subsequently, the EPA has been stymied by political and industry influence preventing regulation. Although the EPA has released two action plans to address PFOS in 2009 and 2019, Few actions were taken until the EPA released the 2021 PFOS Roadmap, which contains proposed timelines for PFOS research and regulation. Read more about EPA's actions through the link in the show notes. As of this writing, PFOS are still not regulated under any federal environmental statute. However, the EPA has proposed three actions to begin regulation. One, in March 2023, the EPA proposed to establish legally enforceable levels for six PFAS found in drinking water. 2. EPA's Emerging Contaminants in Small or Disadvantaged Communities Grant Program will provide $2 billion from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to communities to address emerging contaminants including PFAS. In April 2023, the EPA asked for public comment on its proposed designation of several PFOS types as hazardous substances. This designation would fall under the Superfund Law, also known as the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, or CERCLA, and would allow EPA to investigate and clean up highly contaminated sites across the country. Critics say that by only designating a few PFAS out of the thousands of types as hazardous substances, this regulation would simply encourage polluters and manufacturers to shift towards closely related but less studied alternative PFAS. Instead, they say the EPA should go further and include the entire class of these forever chemicals in its Superfund program. MEIC's friends at Earth Justice are tracking EPA's 2021 roadmap through the link in the show notes. Montana DEQ has added two PFAS to official groundwater quality standards and has monitored water sources for PFAS. In 2020, it developed a broad plan to address PFAS. Further action based on this plan, quote, 
will be determined based on agency and stakeholder resources, availability, expertise, and regulatory authorities, end quote. Read more about this plan through the link in the show notes. Thanks to Christine at Earth Justice for her expertise and contributions to this article. Healthcare and Climate Change, written by Kenzie Criswell. The connection between the climate crisis and its impact on public health is undeniable. The rise in forest fires and decrease in air quality can be seen without measuring particulate matter. Most summers, and throughout a lengthening wildfire season, the public faces poor air quality conditions, and their health suffers as a result. With July 2023 being the hottest month on the global temperature record, and little systemic change to curb the cause of rising temperatures, doctors will be even busier in upcoming years. While treating patients who have been affected by the climate crisis, hospitals may also have a significant environmental impact. These medical centers aren't exactly gas plants, but their impact is observable. Oftentimes, the biggest advocates for cleaning up the medical industry's climate impacts come from within a local hospital. Healthcare professionals see the changing climate's lasting effects in their practice. From treating children facing respiratory problems to performing surgery, doctors and nurses are surrounded by the health impacts of the crisis and have first-hand knowledge about their sector's contribution to the harm. Luckily, many hospitals across the nation have acknowledged these problems and taken steps to reduce their impact. Hospitals contribute to and address the impacts of climate crisis in various ways. This is certainly true for pediatricians, who treat the most vulnerable people on a daily basis. Doctors Rob and Lori Byron have deep-rooted knowledge of the relationship between climate change and public health. They serve on the board of directors of Montana Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate and have worked on the Crow Indian Reservation for decades. Rob is a physician and internist. Lori is a pediatric hospitalist. Together, they co-lead the Citizens Climate Lobby Health Team to spread awareness of the climate crisis to medical professionals. Montana's increased wildfires over the past several years have resulted in harmful airborne ash, which is made of damaging particulate matter of different sizes. Rob said this is especially dangerous for pregnant women. Quote, Breathing pristine air, of course, there will still be stillborn and preterm births, but polluted air increases that risk. End quote, Rob said. But the harm is not limited to developing children. Polluted air also increases the risk of heart attacks and strokes, especially with increasing heat waves. This makes it essential to also focus on preventative action, not just immediate care. With the rising risks from polluted air, the best way to help is to decrease our carbon footprint and try to mitigate the climate crisis. Dr. Greg Lynn, a Missoula anesthesiologist, served as a Montana state senator from 2005 to 2008. Working alongside MEIC, he helped improve water quality and forest management and fought against anti-environmental bills. Having a love for science, natural curiosity, and a strong sense of wanting to, quote, help our fellow humans, end quote, he pursued medicine to help others out in the hospital. Once he started working as a medical provider, he realized how important it was to also increase public awareness of the link between climate and healthcare. Greg said he worked at a hospital that used the anesthetic nitrous oxide, a gas with 265 times more warming potential than carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is a gas used to relieve pain and was commonly used during surgery. After use, the gas was vented to the atmosphere the hospital realized that the pipes that carried the nitrous oxide were leaking, putting health professionals, patients, and others in the building at risk for nausea, disorientation, and impaired memory. To fix this problem, Greg and other professionals started using individual nitrous oxide tanks instead of piping in the walls. This allowed them to use only what was necessary for the procedure. This decreased the amount of nitrous oxide consumed and consequently decreased vented gas. The transition also dramatically lowered costs due to leaks. Rob said another common anesthetic, disflurane, is a potent greenhouse gas and carries 2,540 times the warming potential of carbon dioxide. Luckily, this anesthetic can be extracted after surgery and reused rather than vented. 
a hospital in Portland, Oregon, saved $1 million in just one year by using less gas and collecting salvageable gas, rather than disposing of it as waste. Being surrounded by both the consequences of climate change and quick solutions to make a significant impact, medical professionals quickly become powerful messengers in addressing the changing climate. Rob said physicians, nurses, and pharmacists are the most respected messengers. Acknowledging the devastating implications on health can help the public and hospitals work together to begin finding solutions. Quote, We all care about our health or that of our children and families, Rob said. While there is no right answer for how hospitals should reduce waste and tackle climate impacts, renewable energy and healthier alternatives that allow professionals to get the materials they need to help patients and keep staff safe are an important first step. Honoring Jim Jensen 2023 Conservationist of the Year Written by Anne Hedges and Durf Johnson Some people only need one name, like Prince or Madonna. MEIC had Jensen. What can you say about a man who took the reins of an organization on the brink of financial collapse and, together with dynamic duo George Ochensky and Adam McLean, brought it back from the ashes? Jim Jensen spent the better part of his career dedicated to making the Montana Environmental Information Center a force to be reckoned with. His tenacious, unflinching, and uncompromising spirit over the course of 35 years was instrumental in protecting what's best about Montana. MEIC is honored to give Jensen our highest award, the Conservationist of the Year Award, at our 50th anniversary celebration on September 16, 2023. Throughout his career, Jensen has been a fierce adversary and developed at MEIC a culture of obstinance to those that would profit by destroying what makes Montana special. However, he is equally kind-hearted to those who worked with him. Jensen turned his experience as a state legislator into a foundation to make Montana the strongest environmental lobbying team in the state. For those who wanted to profit off of destroying Montana's landscapes, waters, climate, and overall environment, or were mealy-mouthed about their commitment to future generations, he has little patience. Over the course of 35 years, Jensen was key in securing innumerable wins for Montana's environment, including dogged work to hold Montana's government accountable to our constitutional right to know. Of particular note is the success of Initiative 137 in 1998, which banned new cyanide heap leach mines in Montana, a citizen's initiative that has prevented untold amounts of mining pollution during the last quarter century and stopped a proposed mine at the headwaters of the Blackfoot River. The idea came to him in the shower one morning, and he was off and running. Fortunately, he had a great staff to help him execute his scheme. In an interview with Montana Free Press, Jensen noted MEIC versus DEQ as one of MEIC's distinguished achievements. This 1999 Montana Supreme Court decision declared that the right to a clean and healthful environment, enshrined in the revamped state constitution of 1972, was a fundamental right and was anticipatory and preventative. Roger Sullivan, a Kalispell attorney and member of the MEIC board, told Montana Free Press upon Jensen's 2020 retirement, quote, I believe that that constitutional right would still ring hollow without the 1999 case. Jim had the vision and foresight and boldness to dare to try to enforce that right through a series of landmark lawsuits. End quote. As a boss, Jensen had your back. He trusted his staff and created humane working conditions in an arena known for burnout. His business background, combined with the best hire of his career, Adam McLean, helped make MEIC financially secure. He was able to retain staff because he strongly promoted a healthy work-life balance good employee health care, and a commitment to enjoying the places MEIC sought to protect. People were often fooled by his tough exterior, but to those who knew him, he was an old softy. Robin Tani Nichols said Jim is still one of her great friends, and his ability to listen to others helped him make crucial connections. In fact, Jensen has a great knack for remembering people and their relationships. He knows who was connected to who and how. While he loves giving history lessons on politicians and movers and shakers, his ignorance of pop culture was astounding. When he once was called Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, he asked, who's that? And when someone referenced Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, he gave a blank look. 
Don't worry, though. Pat Judge educated him with a signed copy. His conservative upbringing in Utah made him an unlikely environmental advocate. While others of his generation were smoking pot and hanging out, he was wearing a tie to school every day and voting Republican. His straight-laced attitudes were a constant source of hilarity for his staff, but ultimately helped him better understand the opposition. Jensen was, and still is, one of a kind. So when you float the Blackfoot River, hike in the Cabinet Mountains, or appreciate the lack of open-pit cyanide heap leach mines across the state, think of Jensen and his unwavering commitment to leaving this place better than he found it. Thanks to our summer staff, MEIC was so fortunate to have a number of rock stars working with us this summer. You might recognize their names from news, emails, or events, or even bylines in this issue of Down to Earth. Kinsey Criswell joined us as an intern in partnership with the Smithsonian Institute and has been instrumental in helping push some key projects at MEIC. She's part of Helena High School's Green Group. She believes in the strong connection between healthcare and climate change, which ultimately fueled her advocacy for change. She likes going to the local farmer's market and hiking with friends in her free time. Grace Gibson Snyder's name might be familiar from the landmark Held versus State of Montana trial or on our list of board member candidates. Grace hit the ground running with us this summer and has helped with grassroots movement building, strengthening coalition partnerships, and considering the climate movement in Montana as a whole. Grace is a college student at Yale and hopes to focus her career on the transition to renewable energy. She's learning to kayak, trying to run more, and her favorite Montana flower is the balsam root. We're also excited to welcome Katie Harrison, our community organizing and event coordination contractor. Katie is based in Billings and was instrumental in helping Billings Climate Week become a reality. She has extensive community organizing experience as well as business experience through her sustainable, not-for-profit vendor shop, Sustainable Billings. Katie is helping MEIC tackle a number of organizing opportunities over the next few months, and you can reach her at the link in the show notes. Welcome, Nicholas Fitzmorris. Hello, I'm excited to join the team as MEIC's energy transition advocate, managing energy campaigns throughout Montana. Growing up in north-central Washington instilled in me a deep-rooted love for the natural world and the communities it nourishes. I've long been driven to preserve the environment, with particular dedication to mitigating global anthropogenic climate change through energy system transformation. To eliminate our climate-altering greenhouse gas emissions in the state, a just and equitable transition from fossil fuel dependency to environmentally friendly, carbon-free energy sources is essential. I recently received a BS in Industrial and Management Systems Engineering from MSU with a minor in Sustainability and Environmental Stewardship to establish a technical foundation from which I ground my energy and environmental advocacy work. I worked at the university's Office of Sustainability for four years and helped secure an ambitious carbon neutrality goal for the institution. When my own energy needs replenishing, you can find me playing music or recharging in the mountains. Billings Climate Week marks first-of-its-kind, week-long climate event in Montana. Written by Katie Spence. Montana's first city-based climate week occurred in Billings during the week of June 4th, and what a week it was. Hundreds of people came to more than 10 events over the course of a week. MEIC was a proud sponsor and participant in many of these events, and we hope it's the first of many climate weeks in Montana. Here are a few of the events that MEIC attended at this year's Climate Week. Click the link in the show notes to see pictures to accompany these write-ups. Panel on Energy Production and the Montana Rate Case MEIC's Durf Johnson joined a panel with Dr. Steve Renning, Monica Trinnell, and Steve Loken to discuss how the energy system impacts our climate and how energy policy and the clean energy transition in Montana can help. The panel also discussed Northwestern Energy's ongoing rate case currently before the PSC. This conversation was recorded and is available on MEIC's YouTube channel through the link in the show notes. The main event. Dr. Steve Running spoke at MSU Billings about the climate crisis. This talk covered everything from carbon to energy generation to what we can do in our own homes. 
Dr. Running is a world-renowned climate scientist and has contributed to IPCC and NASA climate reports. This is a great talk for anyone looking to learn more about the climate crisis and how to talk about it. This event was recorded and can be viewed at the link in the show notes. Garden Party St. Andrew's Presbyterian hosted Dr. Steve Running and members of the community for a tour of their community garden and delicious lunch. The community garden serves many families in the community. Dr. Running also spoke about how there are many ways that sustainable gardening can help mitigate the climate crisis, from reducing the need for large factory farms to composting. Showing of Youth Gov. On Wednesday night, Ford Montana, MEIC, Families for a Livable Climate, Montana Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate, Yellowstone Valley Citizens Council, and Sierra Club hosted a movie night with a showing of Youth v. Gov. This film documents the National Youth Climate Trial and set the stage for the following week when Held Free State of Montana trial would begin. One of the Held plaintiffs, Ricky Held, joined the event and spoke words of encouragement to those gathered. Clean Energy Fair on August 12th. As a bonus, Montana Renewable Energy Association held its annual Clean Energy Fair in Billings on August 12th. Our team met dozens of people interested in getting clean, affordable energy to Montana. Please check the show notes for more information on how you can take action on the topics in this issue. If you enjoyed this issue and find value in our work, please consider becoming an MEIC member by donating today. Thanks for listening.